Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul says she's not considering raising taxes in her new state budget proposal due out next month, even though New York's fiscal outlook continues to deteriorate. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Governor Hochul says just one year ago, the state's revenues were at near record rates and federal pandemic-related funding was pouring in from Washington. Literally a year ago, when we were looking at our landscape, it was very bright. You know, it was a bright day. Now the U.S. is experiencing the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. There's concern over high fuel prices and a drop in the stock market. This year, it's a totally different story. Hochul says controlling state spending will be a top priority in 2023. The governor says she's already working on her budget proposal. It's due at the end of January. And she says raising taxes will not be part of the equation. I don't believe that raising taxes at a time we just cut taxes makes sense. Hochul last year initiated a property tax rebate and implemented the final phase of a middle-class tax cut. Two years ago, before she was governor, the state raised the income tax rate on wealthy New Yorkers. The governor says she's also not reneging on a commitment to fully fund schools under what's known as the state's foundation aid formula. The funding was the subject of a decades-long court battle, which plaintiffs won in 2006. But a plan to fulfill that court order and fully fund the schools was scrapped during the Great Recession. An agreement to fully restore the money did not come until this year. Hochul says there's also built-in increases in health care funding and in the Medicaid program, which is partially funded by the state. She says those increases, which she says are necessary for helping move out of the pandemic, also won't be altered. Those are already committed obligations that we're going to meet. But then there's all the agencies and uh, how we manage those. Hochul's budget director, Robert Mujica, has asked the agencies to hold the line on spending in their budget requests. Mujica says he and the governor took steps in the current budget in case an economic downturn occurred. They held back billions of dollars from pandemic-related federal funding in reserves and are growing the rainy day fund from 4 percent to 15 percent of the state's total budget. And he says some big-ticket one-time spending items, including bonus payments to health care workers, were financed with one-time sources of revenue from the federal relief packages, so they won't be a burden on future spending plans. But Mujica says the recent interest rate increases by the Federal Reserve, aimed at slowing economic growth to tame inflation, will likely alter the state's predictions of steady economic growth for the next few years. And he says that's a concern for Wall Street and the financial industry, which is responsible for a significant percentage of the state's total tax collections. The outlook, right, is extraordinarily challenging environment. We are seeing most consensus uh, economic forecasters are predicting, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 50 and 80 percent right, of, of an economic downturn. Mujica says for now, though, revenue collections remain strong and unemployment is low, close to pre-pandemic levels. Mujica is leaving the budget office at the end of the year to take a job in Puerto Rico. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. <laughs>
are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with Newsday's Yancey Roy about multiple lawsuits filed against New York's new concealed carry weapons law. This all started when the Supreme Court last summer, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down New York's uh, concealed weapons law, uh, which had been on the books for 100 years and had been a, one of the stricter ones in the country. The Supreme Court said that the standards for getting a license were too subjective, but the state could try again and put in more objective standards. So the Democratic-controlled legislature and Kathy Hochul did just that. Not only did they put a lot of conditions in, such as 18 hours of training uh, before you could get a license, but they also threw into the law dozens and dozens of prohibited places where you you could never carry a concealed weapon this is you know places that serve alcohol and parks and government buildings and the list goes on and on and on immediately guns rights groups said that that law was even more restrictive than the one that got struck down so it sparked a, just a bevy of lawsuits 10 and counting so far uh, some have challenged the First Amendment, uh, free speech. Some have challenged Second Amendment on uh, the right to bear arms. Some have challenged equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Some have said it's too burdensome. There's a whole variety of breaths and, and uh, arc of lawsuits and arguments filed in western New York, uh, northern New York, one on Long Island. It's, it's all over the place. And, uh, you know, folks have been seeing little incremental stories where one judge – grants an injunction and then one level and then the next few weeks later the next court up puts a stay on it so we tried to put together a chart of all the lawsuits there are 10 right now they're in various stages the, the bottom line though is that all the provisions of the concealed carry law that was passed last summer are still in place uh even when uh, a, a judge has granted an injunction to say some of these can't be enforced it's let's labor been uh, kind of taken over by a stay placed on it. So the key thing to watch is that there's going to be some lawsuits moving forward as we go into 2023. It'll probably be months down the road before we get any kind of real substantial ruling that kind of shows where this is going. But it just shows you the interest in the law and the interest in gun rights groups and sort of knocking holes into the law. It's going to be one of the big issues to follow in the courtroom in 2023. Let's switch subjects. Uh, the deadline is approaching fast now for Governor Kathy Hochul to make her selection for the state's top judge. I guess mm -hmm. the question here is, does the public really care? <laughs> Do they watch it? Is this a, such a strategic thing that they're going to say, golly gee whiz, Martha, that was terrific or not? You know, that's a, that's a good question because it, it draws the New York top court is important. Uh, it does decide a lot of important issues in the state, but it generates nowhere near the controversy of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which is pretty obvious to say. Um, you know, it's not dealing with sort of the fundamental big picture rights that we've seen recently in the federal courts, especially abortion. Um, but the New York State Court of Appeals is is pretty important, and the direction is important. Uh, the judge who recently retired is Janet DeFiori. She was a Cuomo appointee and a former prosecutor. And under her tenure in six years, the court definitely seemed to favor prosecutors a lot more than defendants was one key issue there. And one other thing that they did was they just didn't hear a lot of cases 
um, you have to ask the court for permission to argue your case more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and the chief judge sets the tone on how many cases you're going to hear a year. And and under DeFiori, that number dropped dramatically. So while it wasn't maybe a kitchen table topic, if if you're Folks who, uh, you know, work on criminal law, whether you're a defense or a prosecutor, if you work on civil rights issues, these things were were pretty important. And the court dramatically uh, cut down on the number of cases it said, which basically means fewer people got their day in New York's highest court. So that brought a lot of criticism from the left, who are now really pushing uh, Kathy Hochul in this new selection of a chief judge to pick someone a little bit more from the left side of the spectrum than DeFiori was. And, and definitely they don't want her to put another ex-prosecutor in the chair of chief judge. So it's going to be it's going to be an important appointment for her, even if, as you said, it's not one that maybe, you know, drives conversation all across dinner tables in New York. What is your crystal ball telling you? Well, there's seven judges on a list that were screened by a committee and forwarded to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, there's several choices that give her an opportunity to make history in that um, she could appoint the first African-American woman as a top judge is one of the nominees. She could appoint the first Hispanic as the chief judge. She could uh, appoint the first Asian-American as the chief judge. And, um, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if if that was part of the calculus and in, in whatever the selection is. There's, there's a chance to make history here. So, um, you know, who, who knows? Uh, you know, there's a lot of candidates with different profiles. She could select a person who was recently uh, with the Legal Aid Society, which defends uh, indigent clients. And putting that person as the chief judge would also be pretty groundbreaking. So I, I think that whoever she selects, look for, you know, that to be part of the equation and that to be part of the stories when the selection is made. It, it, there's be some sort of groundbreaking to be made with this selection. That's Yancey Roy, Albany Bureau Chief for Newsday, speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartong. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics, I'm David Gustina. Since the onset of the pandemic, food pantries have endured rising demand for groceries. Now the pantries say there's a dire need for additional year-end support to keep their shelves stocked. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas takes a look at what's happening in the Capital Region. The 70 organizations' strong food pantries of the Capital District shared results of a recent survey saying community support helps the organization provide 2.7 million meals annually for the region's hungry. Natasha Pernicka is the group's executive director. 83% of food pantries in our coalition are reporting that they're seeing an increase in service levels. This is really because of a lot of the federal assistance programs have ended or are scaling back and combining that with inflation, so many people now are really struggling to make ends meet. 
45% of our pantries reported not feeling that they have adequate funding to provide the services to their community. 48% of pantries reported not feeling that their current funding will last throughout the year. Speaking at the St. Vincent de Paul Pantry on Albany's Madison Avenue, Pernica says gasoline expenses related to food acquisition and delivery have doubled from $13,000 in 2021 to more than $26,000 so far this year. Add to that a 19% increase in referrals for food pantry services. Pernica is asking folks to step up and call their local food pantry to find out what their specific needs are. We are asking you to go above and beyond this holiday season to help us get through this winter and make sure that our pantries have enough food to serve our neighbors in need. If people would like to get involved, you can go to thefoodpantries.org. If you would like to help your specific neighborhood food pantry, we have a food pantry map on our website. You can find the food pantries that exist in your own neighborhood throughout New York State. State Assembly Member Pat Fahey of the 109th District says the increasing price of a basket of groceries cuts across all social and economic lines. We like to think we're post-pandemic, uh, that we're coming out of the worst of it, even if COVID is on the upswing yet again. Uh, but we, we'd like to think that the worst is over, but because of the pandemic, because of Ukraine, because of all the supply chain issues, that is hurt. That has fueled inflation as well. That has hurt. The bottom line is it is hurting everyday families, uh, individuals right across the board. Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan, also a Democrat, says food pantries are critically important to the Capital District community. Food insecurity causes and is often the root cause of what can be then a chain of events that really negatively impact our families. They negatively impact children's ability to learn in school. They negatively impact people's ability to be able to manage their finances and figure out how they're going to be able to stay in their apartment, pay their utility bills, uh, and be able to afford food. And so it causes stress and anxiety, um, all of which we know contribute to poor health outcomes. So this is a really critical piece of what we need to do to ensure that our families have what they need, particularly in the wintertime. Pernica says the pantries are looking toward the capital for help. We are calling on Governor Hochul to increase the HIPNAP budget. It's the Hunger Prevention Nutrition Assistance budget uh, in her executive budget proposal. We're asking for an increase to $63 million in HIPNAP funding for the next year. That HIPNAP funding goes directly to help pantries purchase food uh, from their food banks. The governor's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. There's more about the pantry's above and beyond year-end campaign at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The Adirondack Park Agency approved a campground in Fulton County and heard opposition to a mine in Warren County at its recent meeting. It also continued the debate over road mileage limitations inside the Blue Line. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell has the details. 
The Adirondack Park Agency has been working through a big question in recent months. How many miles of roads can and should there be within wild forest land in the park? The master plan for the Adirondacks, which the APA adopted back in 1972, said there should be, quote, no material increase in road mileage from that point on. So first, the APA had to figure out how many miles of roads there were in the park's wild forest land back in 1972. They've now done that. Here's APA Chairman John Ernst at Thursday's meeting. We're acknowledging that 211.6 is the road mileage in 1972, and that's the, that's the standard. Now the APA has to decide what the term material increase means and how to even define a road. They also have to balance that debate with ensuring public access to the park. Board member Zoe Smith said she wanted more information before making any decisions on the issue. You know, we've heard a lot about public desire to have access into the wild forest, but we haven't heard much in terms of impact to the resources from roads. APA staff will now regroup to gather more information, which they'll likely present to the board again in the coming months. At Thursday's meeting, the APA board also heard about two projects proposed in Fulton County. The first was a boat launch on Great Sacandaga Lake. The D.C. wants to upgrade the parking lot there. They also want to revegetate an old beach once operated by the town of Broad Albin. Some APA board members took issue with essentially getting rid of the beach. Beaches serve so much more of a function than just swimming. That's APA board member Jerry Delaney. These are important places, especially coming out of the pandemic, when we're telling people, get outside, you know, get in the fresh air. But the beach has been closed for years. The DEC's Josh Clegg told the APA board it's now used illegally, sometimes for parties. The state wants to turn it into a launching site for people who want to go kayaking or canoeing. Here's Clegg. We really followed the town's lead in terms of determining that they were done with the site and knowing that we were not going to be able to meet Department of Health standards and provide a lifeguard, for example, that it was not going to be appropriate for us to try to even maintain it as a beach. With that, the board approved opening the plan up for public comment until mid-January. The board also approved a permit for a campground near Great Sacandaga Lake. Most of the 120 or so campsites within the park's boundaries will be for RVs. Finally, the APA board heard two public comments on Thursday, both about Barton Mines. Barton operates a garnet mine in the Warren County town of Johnsburg. The company applied for a permit last year to extend its operations, but the APA deemed its application incomplete. Beth Marr lives near the mine in North River. She told the board that the mine has been expanding, having more of a negative impact on the area. The ever-enlarging tailings pile is now a constant eyesore, and there is a thrum of machinery during the middle of the night echoing from the 24-7 mine operation. Marr works as a doctor in the area. She said Barton Mine plays an important role in the community, but urged the APA to consider the concerns of locals. My question to you is an ethical one that I've confronted over my career as a hospice doc. Life at what cost? According to the APA, Barton Mine hasn't responded to the agency since its permit application was deemed incomplete last year. It's unclear if or when the company will reapply. That's North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell reporting for the Legislative Gazette.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Well, it was a flop in theaters when it was released 76 years ago. But now, It's a Wonderful Life is considered a quintessential holiday classic. Nowhere is that more true than Seneca Falls, which claims credit for having inspired the movie's Bedford Falls. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WXXI's Scott Feibush was at the Village's annual celebration of the movie and its surviving stars. It's the sound of this season along Fall Street. Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. If Carolyn Grimes ever gets tired of saying her famous line, you'd never know it more than 70 years later. For almost 30 of those years, she's been on the nostalgia circuit along with her movie siblings from the Bailey family, meeting fans who treat the film as an inspiration. The people that went through the autograph lines shared with me the stories of how the movie had changed their lives and gave them hope, and it really serves a wonderful purpose. It helps a lot of people. The movie's theme resonates deeply with Grimes, whose son committed suicide at age 18. It's why she says she's certain director Frank Capra based the movie on Seneca Falls, where he visited in 1945. The bridge George Bailey jumps from in his attempt? It's a close match for the one in Seneca Falls that still bears a plaque honoring Antonio Veracalli, who died a century ago when he jumped from that bridge to save a girl who tried to kill herself there. He would have felt that energy and he would have got inspiration, I'm sure, from something like that when he was here. And I do believe he was here because I talked to the barber that cut his hair. Capper died in 1991, a decade before Seneca Falls began honoring the movie that he said was his favorite. I'm Monica Capra Hodges, and I'm Frank Capra's granddaughter. And I'm Hannah Capra Ermey, and I'm Frank Capra's great-granddaughter. The annual weekend-long celebration has become a reunion for the film's family, both on and off the screen. Capra's granddaughter began coming to Seneca Falls after encountering Carolyn Grimes at a flea market on the West Coast. It's given her new insight into a man she knew only as her grandpa who lived in Palm Springs. The meaning of the movie to him was every man's life is important. Every man touches, you know, every person's decisions and how they live their life touches so many others. That's a theme you hear a lot this time of year in Seneca Falls. It makes everybody feel, I've done something. George Bailey never thought he did anything until he got to see what life would have been like if he had never been born. And that's other people say, I I bet I've done something too. That's Jimmy Hawkins, who played little Tommy Bailey when he was four. Four and a half. That's a big deal. It is half. Half. His memories of being on the set with Frank Capra remain vivid. When Jimmy Stewart came in the room, he'd say, uh, now go through his pockets. So you'll see me doing all these things like, oh, did Daddy bring me something? And then I put tinsel on his head. The festivities in Seneca Falls draw fans from around the country, including new visitors Greg and Gene Bond from West Virginia. They've been fans of the movie for decades. Every year, without fail, this is our favorite movie. But it was just this year that they discovered a family connection to the film. Ward Bond uh, was my great uncle. He was uh, my grandfather's brother. Uh, he was Bertha Cobb in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've never met him, and uh, I found out a few years ago that I was actually related to him, and I was like, okay, how awesome is that? Jason Midoff and his eighth-grade daughter Jane came from Syracuse with their Lego models of Bedford Falls. She's part of what locals hope will be a new generation of fans and part of a committee that's filling a time capsule to be opened in 2046 on the movie's centennial. My dad and I watched it. started when I was like six, I think, and then we watched it every year since then. 
So has it become one of your favorites? Definitely, yeah. Will Jane be the exception? Hannah Capra Ermy hopes her great-grandfather's production choices will make the movie a perennial classic and not just an antique. That was a conscious choice that Frank Capra made when he made It's a Wonderful Life. He wanted it to be black and white. He thought it would retain the nostalgia of the film and really emphasize the emotions and the feelings. And So I, I think it's it's really cool that it's a black and white. And it just, once you learn that, it helps create a deeper appreciation for it. The actors who played Tommy and Zuzu Bailey, they agree. It's never going to go away. It'll be soon the greatest film ever made. The young people need to learn what magic is in there. And, and I'm hoping that enough parents will do that as a tradition and, and it'll just go down through the ages with their kids. Let's hope so, because it would be a terrible loss if we lost that wonderful story. That's WXXI's Scott Feibush reporting for the Legislative Gazette. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2251. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.